town sees us and then this woman who called us will say, oh, you know what? Maybe you could solve that problem by calling somebody OB Joel for church. This is what we want. This is what we want. We were also able to help the Wildflower Festival last week and, uh, the, and Simba, the Mountain Bike Association. So pretty exciting just in one week. Lots of good things happening where the gospel gets doors open, where what we do gets the doors open for the gospel. So thank you for being a part of that. Just wanted to share with you. It's always good when your dreams come true and they're not bad ones. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, we're in a series called Grace Changes Everything. It's a story about the life of David that we're looking at different aspects of his life, but emphasizing really the brokenness in it. And if you heard what was just read to you, then you heard one of the most broken stories in the Bible. And here's the crazy thing. David is the guy through whom it is the most focused, the Bible is most focused about his relationship to Jesus. Jesus comes from his line, but he is so broken and his life is so messed up. I mean, the things that he does in this story are reprehensible and unforgivable. And we only read just the, the tiniest part of it. This is just one of those moments. And we're going to look at it for, for a few minutes this morning. I want to uh, just set the stage with David on this. He, he's older. He's been very successful as the king of Israel. And he's respected and loved and all this. He's decided, though, when the typical thing is to go and, and defend his country where his, his armies are away doing that at this moment in the story, he stays home. And the, the author seems to sort of poignantly note that for us. And then he's on his couch and he's taking a nap and he gets up and he goes up on the roof. And from there, he falls into temptation. He lets himself go to a place that he shouldn't go. That turns into an affair, which turns into a pregnancy, which then leads to some other pretty amazingly terrible things. In fact, he, uh, it leads to him lying, it's manipulating people, and it leads to murder of several people. This is the guy who wrote lots of the Psalms, right? The guy who said, Lord, your word is, your truth, your law is written on my heart. That's what he said. And then he does this. But this message, and I think the reason that this is in the scripture, is not about the actual event, the thing that he did, although that is very important and resonates with most of us in this room. It's his epic moral failure is a reminder that it doesn't matter who you are, you are susceptible and ready to fall. And that includes, I'm not pointing the finger at you, I'm not saying it's you. I'm included in the you. Here's the, here's the main point. Uh, let, me, let me just say what the main point is not. The main point is not about the sexual sin of David. That's one way we could look at this. But this is an example for all of us to remind us we are all full of the seeds of making these things happen, of doing these things. And actually, in many ways in our lives right now are involved in the exact same thing. The story, the plot, the setting is different, but we're doing the same thing. David is just the the king and it's an epic failure. And so we see it a lot more uh, vividly and we can judge him a lot more easily. But y'all, each of us are engaged somehow in this kind of thing. The beauty of this whole thing 
is that it sets the stage for the story of redemption. So what I want to ask you to do is just while, we're, while I'm talking and you're thinking and you're wrestling around with God on this topic, uh, just take down the barriers and ask yourself honestly, where in my life am I like David? Where in my life am I like David? Just if you can do that, and I think as you listen to the story, uh, it, it'll help you interact with God in a way that dr- draws you to understanding better what his redemption is all about. So, three points I want to take you through. One is premeditation, two, action, and three, conviction. Premeditation, action, and conviction. So let's start with premeditation. And the reason I use the word premeditation for this is that it seems to me that David is fairly culpable from the beginning of the story. Even probably from before that we pick up this narrative, David is probably somewhat culpable. And like I said earlier, I think that the author wants to point that out to us. He wants us to see by his very dry statements, it's sort of a, a very dry narrative as he walks through it, but he wants us to see that David is culpable. David is, is setting the stage. As I read this, I kept thinking, everything David's doing is preparing himself for a bad situation. And whether he knew it or not is, is not for us to judge. But I do, do think it is important for us to think, how am I setting the stage? Or am I setting the stage? We have to ask ourselves that question. Despite David's uh, closeness with God, his knowledge of who God is, all of what he had written, all of that beautiful poetry, still he was capable of setting the stage for this. And when he comes to that critical moment where he is on his roof and he's looking around, bored or whatever, and he sees something that attracts him and he's looking over there, what he doesn't do at that critical moment is turn away. He doesn't turn away at the critical moment. I think there was some sense in David, and I, I think I feel this as well, of, a, uh, of an overconfidence, of a, a willingness to walk close to the edge. And sometimes that edge gets a little bit too close. Like, if I walk up here, you guys might get a little nervous, especially because you know how my propensity to fall and hurt myself. Oh, I got to tell you, I got to just break for a second. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you this. I was in this bike race a couple weeks ago. Fat Tire 40. Anybody else do that? A couple of y'all probably did that. And uh, I'm riding up this trail, and a girl comes around me, and she says, okay, can I come around? You know, ding, ding, you mind? Like, sure. You know, I pull over, she passes me, and here's what she says. She says, uh, she gets like 15 feet in front, and apparently she's processing. She goes, are you okay? (laughs) I was like, am I bleeding? What? What's going on? What's wrong? What is, anyway, I just, I've been wanting to share it. I didn't have a way to do it, so there it is. Um, anyway, that was on my mind, apparently. Uh, we walk close to the edge in life. We're overconfident. We're, and I think as we go through in this message, this may uh, come a little bit more into focus for you. I was on a climbing trip with some friends a few years ago, and we were... Uh, on one side of a, a box canyon. It was about 150 feet deep. And so we could just see over the edge to this, uh, this couple that were climbing over here. So we could see the river, and then we could see these people coming up from the bottom. Or he, she was on, the, or one of the guys was on the bottom, and he was 
uh, starting to climb. So he's climbing up and he's putting in his protection as he goes up and stretching out his rope and going further and further. And, you know, you, you lock into those things in, in the crack or whatever. And um, so he stretches out and pretty soon he is way up. He's at least 100 feet up. And he's drawn himself out on this stringer that's so far. And I, I was looking at my friends going, I thought, that kid's crazy. He's so far from where he, uh, from his last point of safety that he's put in the wall, that something is going to happen. And, and, and it did. And he pops off the wall, and we're watching. I'm like, we're going to watch this guy die. You know, it was terrifying. He goes, and one of those things pops out of the wall, you know. And I'm like, oh, God. And the, and one, the next one or two down catches him, and he swings down and hits the, you know, some of you guys know about climbing. So bam, he hits the wall, and he's just hanging there about 12 feet off the ground. And uh, it was terrifying to watch that. But he had gotten overconfident. He had moved out way beyond where it was safe to go, and he thought he was okay. He knew the rules. He knew what was going on, apparently, because he'd been doing it for a, a bit of the way. But then he got out too far. He was overconfident. It was going so well. You know, what could go wrong? There's something in this with David with us, where it's a sense of, I, I'm doing great. You know, how could something happen? My friend uh, Jake Kirby and I were talking about this this week, and he said, I really think David had a chance to get out uh, of what he was doing. There's a passage in the New Testament that says when we're tempted, when we're struggling, God's going to give us a way out. And for those of you who struggle with temptation, uh, sometimes you're like, I don't see this happening very often. You know, but every now and then there's that, that thing where, where God gives us a way out. And when David, this is what Jake was pointing out, when David says to his, to his uh, staff or whoever he's talking to, he says, hey, who's the girl that lives two blocks over? And one of them says, well, I think that's probably the daughter of so-and-so and the son of one of your best, most devoted friends. I think that was an opportunity for David to go, wait a second, you know, okay. I'm going to back down. I'm going to stop this. But he doesn't. He proceeds. He missed a chance to back out. I think David had a predisposition like we do to choose things that are destructive to us and destructive to others. But David went beyond a predisposition to a premeditation. He was working to set up the action that would come, the thing that he would do. And that's the second point, this action that he comes to. And let me, uh, I'm just gonna try to slow down here and make sure I, I say this. His action of fulfilling his desire is one thing. But at the deeper level, what he was doing was saying, I'm unwilling to believe that God can fulfill me. I am unwilling to believe that God can meet any and all of my needs. As I've been a, a pastor uh, preaching for a little while um, now, I've had an opportunity to study the Bible quite a bit, uh, more than I ever have, really. And looking through that time, these last five years, one of the truths that keeps coming up for me is the fact that we desire, we cannot help but believe the oldest lie. The oldest lie was written about in Genesis, in the early part of Genesis, when it was said that 
God is hiding something from you. God has something for you that he's keeping you from experiencing or enjoying. And if you would just break through those rules, you break through those boundaries, you'll find out what it is and you will be so happy. This is the lie that David believes. And this is the thing I want to say to you. I believe we are constantly doing this. We are saying, pretty sure I know better. I'm pretty sure I can meet my need. And, and though God has set up these boundaries, set up this structure, said this is the way you'll find joy in life, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to press that a little bit, God. With you. And that's the oldest lie. I mean, it's written in the earliest pages of the scripture. We should probably be aware of the fact that we're doing that. It's part of how we operate. Well, the, the consequences of David's decision were horrific. Uh, the consequences of the, the decision made in Genesis were horrific. Let me read you something that David himself wrote. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. God, you hold my lot. You hold everything. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wrote that, and yet he did this. Somehow we know this stuff, but we're willing to act on the oldest lie. God's hiding something from me. Yeah, here's the hard part for me. If you're someone in this room, some of you are resonating with all of this stuff. You're like, oh yeah, oh gosh, I'm just like, I do that. I'm, you know, I'm there. Some of us are thinking, well, I know someone who's there. Um, and, and even if we really identify with David we're still thinking of other people kind of pushing that aside um, let me just ask you to please stop doing that um, when we take hold of that judgment we are in the exact same place as David was we are justifying ourselves what we are doing which is evil and we are just like David. And I'm, I, my confession is this. As I was writing this, I was thinking about people who were judging the other person. I was judging them. I was like, how can I write this and be doing, I'm like just one, I'm just like compounding it. It's worse. We are using another person to cover up our shame and justify us by saying, oh, they're worse. You know, this is the critical, horrible thing that Christians have done for eons and do. And that's why it's so unlikely that our town would think to ask us to help them because they think we're judging them because they're liberals over there, right? Or whatever they are. That's what they think. That's what they hear from us. That's what they, they have made up from us. But they get that because we want to be better. And, you know, we always do that. We always want to be better than somebody else. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we turn it into believing the oldest lie and say, well, I'm, I'm better, I can judge, and that's what God's provided for me. Guys, it's just the, it's the complete opposite. We, the, we're then believing the lie that there's something that's going to fulfill me, and it's something about me that makes me better, and I'm going to own that thing, and it's going to be, I'm just better. I'm just good. And y'all, just please don't go there with me.
Now, I'm not giving, sharing this message with you to put a guilt trip on you. That'd be the worst possible thing that we could do in church ever. It's not about that. This is a message that sets us up for understanding redemption, not condemnation. But we have to be honest, and the reason I'm pointing like I am and and pressing in a little bit is that we have to ask ourselves, where are we believing that lie? That God is hiding something from us. So then, the third point, conviction. David's gonna get convicted of what he did with Bathsheba, but he's convicted for much more than just that. I wanna read a little bit of this to you. David has, uh, he actually, in order to cover up his, uh, his affair, he calls his good friend Uriah home from battle. He says, Uriah, why don't you hang out with your wife for a week or so and then um, head back to battle? And Uriah says, no, I'm not gonna do that because my friends are at war. I'm, not, I'm too loyal. I'm gonna, stick, I'm gonna stand right beside them. Eventually, after all of David's efforts, uh, Uriah is not going to do that, so David's gonna send him back. And here's what David does. He writes a letter to Joab. That's David's general. And he sent the letter with Uriah himself, the husband of Bathsheba. And in the letter is written, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Then pull back and leave him exposed so that he is sure to be killed. So Uriah delivers his execution orders. You can like make this up better in Hollywood. So Joab, holding the city under siege that they were um, attacking, he says, put Uriah in a place where he knew there were fierce enemy fighters. And when the city's defenders came out to fight Joab, some of David's soldiers were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, then David has a good friend step in. And and David's friend Nathan uses a story to convict David. This is from 2 Samuel 11 as well. But God was not at all pleased with with what David had done. And he sent Nathan to David. And Nathan said, and listen to this story, y'all. There were two men in the same city, one rich, the other poor. And the rich man had huge flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. And the poor man had had nothing but one female lamb, which he had bought and raised, brought up and raised. It grew up with him and his children, as a member of their family, ate off his plate and drank from his cup and slept on his bed. It was like a daughter to him. And one day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man. And he was too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitor. So he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared a meal to set before his guest. And David exploded in anger. As surely as God lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this ought to be lynched. He must repay for the lamb four times over for his crime and his stinginess. And Nathan said, you are that man. But here's the thing, y'all. This was conviction, not condemnation. There is a great difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction for a follower of God is not final condemnation and misery. It's the beginning of freedom. Tim Keller says it this way, God wants conviction and change, not condemnation. What glorifies God is when there is repentance and redemption. 
Grace changes everything. Conviction opens the door to redemption. So let me uh, close with this, this thought. This is the end of Nathan's conversation with David. From verse 13, chapter 12. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against God. And Nathan pronounced, yes, but that is not the last word. God forgives your sin and you won't die for it. David truly deserved condemnation. He truly did deserve that. He deserved to die for what he did. But David, you will not die. David didn't know it at that point, but his redemption was ultimately paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. What David deserved in all fairness, Jesus received in all unfairness. His debt and our debt has been paid for by Jesus. And David's story sets up the beauty of that. We cannot go further than David. And Jesus goes beyond that to redeem, to forgive. And, you know, after seeing something like this and and it resonating so much with my life, I'm so thankful that the conviction that comes to me through something like this is a conviction unto hope, not condemnation unto death. Will you pray with me? Father, so thankful for what you have done to your son and that you knew that the penalty that David, the penalty that we all... um, our due would be paid for by your son. And God, we would be able to experience that, even today. God, um, for those who haven't believed in your son, taken, uh, let, let his cross bear their sin, Lord. May those people make that decision today. God, those of us who, um, who have experienced it, God, remind us that we are right on the edge, um, but for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great afternoon.